Good morning, and thank you for listening to the Beyond Footnotes podcast. Today, we will be contextualizing the recent political events surrounding the United States and Iran. At the beginning of 2020, tensions between Iran and the United States reached a boiling point. The American embassy in Baghdad, Iraq, was besieged by militia forces allegedly backed by Iran, and the president of the United States responded by ordering a targeted missile strike on Qasem Soleimani, a major general in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard. He was a popular person in Iran, and in the few days after the strike, thousands of Iranian citizens swarmed the streets calling for revenge. President Trump announced that any further aggression would be met by the destruction of 52 sites important to Iran's military and culture. In retaliation, the Iranian government launched a missile attack on a base in Iraq housing American and coalition troops. No one was injured or killed by the attack. President Trump did not follow through with his threat, but rather enacted sanctions meant to cripple the Iranian economy. The relationship between Iran and the United States, both now and historically, is extremely complex. And I hope to further understand it by discussing the history with Professor Laura Robson, a specialist in the modern Middle East, specifically in the Arab world. Professor Robson, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Mm. So we, we have a lot to discuss today, but let's try to go back to the beginning of relations between the United States and Iran. In 1953, the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, was overthrown in a coup organized by the CIA and named Operation Ajax. Could you explain why the United States authorized this operation? The United States was working in conjunction with the British government to conduct this operation, and it was a response and reaction to Mossadegh's plans to nationalize the Iranian oil industry, which had been a goal of Iranian nationalists for quite a long time. The British, in particular, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, possessed virtually unlimited authority over the Iran, the whole of the Iranian oil industry and viewed its potential nationalization as a catastrophe for its own global position and for, of course, its commercial endeavors. The, the idea for the coup was planned jointly um, between the Americans and the British, and it was among the first coups of this nature that the CIA put into place. It was a, regu- a relatively new organization at the time, and it was almost a kind of experiment to see if these sorts of covert operations could be a cheap and effective and efficient method of what, what we would now call regime change. It was really in response to this question of oil nationalization and kind of defended later also by through the idea that this was part of an anti-communist kind of schema, global schema on the part of the United States on the basis that Mossadegh's party, the two-day party, which was a kind of leftist-leaning party, was affiliated with international communism and the Soviet Union. So what was the outcome of the coup in Iran? So the outcome of the coup was that Mossadegh, who had been a democratically elected leader, was removed from office and replaced by a government headed up by the Shah who had been temporarily kind of removed from his position during Mossadegh's rise to power. And it resulted in the rise of a highly authoritarian 
government based around the monarchy in Iran that eventually scholars have suggested turned into essentially a totalitarian state by the time we get to the 1970s. Um, so it was really the replacement of a democratic government and a dem democratically elected government with an authoritarian regime backed by American money and American military power. So Mossadegh was democratically elected yes. by the people. That's right. And did... My, I guess my first question would be, did the citizens know that the United States played a part in this at the time? And did this cause anti-American sentiment or did they not know? The United States denied this until very relatively recently. So it's only in the past, you know, couple of decades that there has been a kind of public acknowledgement of the U.S.'s role in this coup. However, it was very widely known across the rest of the world. And so, yes, there was. it was also extremely evident as soon as the Shah took power again that his money and backing were coming from the United States and that this included essentially the kind of sale of Iraq's, uh, sorry, Iran's oil industry back to American and British interests. So we have a situation where, you know, there is a lot of awareness of the role that the United States played in the coup, but also in the role that the United States was playing in sustaining this authoritarian regime in the years following the coup, right? So I think it's not just a matter of an awareness of what happened in 1953 itself, but in the decades that came later. And especially as the regime kind of solidified and it became clear that it had to depend on this kind of external assistance, it became more and more violent. And by the 1970s was operating, you know, an infamous secret police force, for instance, that was also, you know, backed by American money and training. So, you know, we do have, there. there is a rise in anti-Americanism during this period because of this consciousness that the kind of domestic violence that the Iranian population was witnessing from its own government was a direct consequence of American actions and ongoing American support. And what were the what was the relationship like specifically between the Iranian government and the American government? You described the sale of oil again. Mm -hmm. It was very close. Um, so during the 1960s, the U.S. government described its approach to the Middle East as resting on the twin pillars of alliance with Israel and an alliance with Iran. Um, so this will come as a surprise, I think, to some people who know what the relationship is like between the U.S. and Iran now. But it was an extremely close relationship. And it was marked not just by preferential oil trading kind of conditions, but also by an increasingly active arms trade between the two countries. Um, so sale of arms to Iran became an important aspect of American foreign policy and, you know, commercial development during the 1960s and 70s. And it was really considered to be one of the kind of primary pillars of American, the American presence in the Middle East in general. And if I'm correct, part of that arms trade was establishing a weaponized nuclear program for Iran. Yes. Correct. So there were there were some intimations of that. There were and it, it was a very, very extensive program in general. And one of the kind of interesting and important aspects of the the arms trade with Iran during this period was the development of the idea of trading oil for arms quite directly, right? So the two trades became intertwined economically and politically and militarily. And so you briefly went into, you know, the police force and <clears throat> the abuse that the people were suffering, but what was the culture of Iran like under the Shah? 
And I imagine the public's opinion of the Shah decreased as time went on and the rule got more totalitarian in nature. It did. And I would say that the domestic sources of support for the Shah's regime became smaller and smaller across those two decades. I think I would characterize opposition to the Shah and to the American presence in Iran as coming from a number of different and maybe incompatible political directions. So on the one hand, we have particularly expatriate and exiled and deported Islamic leaders like Khomeini, who will rise to power from his perch in in Iraq and then in Paris, objecting to the Shah's regime on grounds that draw on kind of older tropes of anti-imperialism and also to some degree some kind of threads of Marxism which were current in a lot of Iranian political thought in this period but also of course on traditional clerical networks on concepts of Muslim law on theological and theocratic kind of ideas about statehood so that's one thread of the opposition but there were many many secular Democrats as well um, particularly in Iran's kind of middle classes its professional classes its, its urban centers among students, university students were an important locus of dissent against the regime, and they were largely coming from a kind of secular constitutional position. Again, sometimes with with Marxist overtones, right? So this kind of leftism, I think, is something that is that is marked in a, across a number of different political sectors in this in this opposition to the Shah that arose during this period. Um, so there's a very very wide, you know spectrum of political thought in the opposition um, that goes all the way from kind of conservative Islamist thinking to secular liberalism to Marxist-style socialism. So I'm not sure we can really characterize kind of a political culture even in the opposition mm. because it's it's so it's so broad. And of course, when the revolution came, it coalesced around this kind of shared goal of getting rid of the regime, but didn't necessarily have a shared vision for what might come next. And were there international reactions to the Shah's regime? Yes. By the time the Carter administration came to power, he was quite worried, Jimmy Carter was quite worried about the degree of opposition to the Shah's dire and, and you know, horrifying human rights record and to American support for that regime that was carrying out those acts. So this was particularly in the 1970s, you know, this is a period of the rise of international human rights organizations like Amnesty who were beginning to track some of these instances of brutality against civilians and bring it to kind of public attention. So, and particularly the other thing that happened during this period is that we have lots and lots of diaspora Iranians escaping the regime, coming to Europe, coming to the United States, going to um, to a lesser degree to other parts of the Middle East, raising awareness about the, the domestic situation within Iran. So there is... I would say a broad kind of international knowledge of the crimes of the regime and the United States was marginally concerned about the kind of PR effects of that knowledge but not enough to risk its relationship which it considered to be kind of vital to the U.S.'s position in the Middle East more generally. So could you begin describing the specific events that led to the revolution? So during the 1960s, 
the regime had put into place a series of reforms that were intended to kind of tamp down some of this political dissent. Um, so to uh, uh, some liberalization of Iranian political spaces, more money flowing into certain sectors of Iranian society, expanded access to the public sphere in very limited sorts of ways, right? So a secularizing set of reforms that were intended to kind of offer a pressure valve to some degree to, to, for, the, for the objections that were coming in. Khomeini himself was operating from abroad. He had been exiled in the 1960s. And he began to produce sets of cassette tapes that were circling of, of lectures of his that began to kind of circle around diaspora groups of Iranians living in Europe, particularly, but also in Iran itself. We see a number of protests that grow in number and intensity in the 19, during the 1970s. And eventually, the Shah was overthrown by something that is kind of potentially, possibly, historians have suggested might be the largest protests on the street that the world has ever seen. Um, so we have just enormous, enormous numbers of people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of political inclinations participating in the overthrow of the regime. And then Khomeini returned to Iran from Paris in early 1979 to great acclaim and immediately emerged as one of the revolution's kind of key figures, although it was by no means clear at that point that this would result in a specifically Islamic form of government. So what was the United States' reaction to these events? I assume they were getting information throughout the whole process. Yeah, you know, it's funny because initially I think that there was some reaction within American diplomatic circles that this was temporary, that it wouldn't interrupt the... You when know, you say temporary, as in that this force would not gain full control of the government? That's right, right. So that this was, you know, a, a kind of temporary hiccup and that the Shah would be back in no time. He himself was quite ill at this point. So that was also kind of part of the, the run up to the revolution itself. There was discussion of his return, his coming to the United States for medical treatment, which the Iranian population viewed in general as a kind of potential, potentially another another coup. So we have a situation where there is kind of an unwillingness to believe initially, I think, what was happening. And it's true with, you know, as is the case in so many revolutions, it's quite difficult to know what sort of government will, will eventually emerge, right? I mean, this is something we saw in the Arab Spring as well, where movements that look like they will be liberalizing, democratizing kind of movements are pushed aside and the status quo is essentially, you know, re-upped, <laughs> re let's say, um, as happened, for instance, in Egypt. So it took a few years for the revolution to result in an actual revolutionary government. And the United States was initially kind of uncertain about whether that would happen at all and if so, kind of who would emerge as the new leader of the state. So Khomeini's dominance was not immediately apparent. Once that did happen, once we did see the kind of emergence of what was now being called the Islamic Republic, the United States declared Iran to be a kind of enemy of the state, right? And it became a very different and very much more hostile kind of foreign policy relationship between the US and, and Iran. 
So that led into my next question. What were the new opinions of the Iranian regime on the American government? So the American government declares them kind of an enemy of the state Mm -hmm. and sees them as hostile. But did the Iranian government now know that the coup was orchestrated by the CIA and that America was responsible? Yes. Okay. And so was there anti-American sentiment within the Iranian government itself? Certainly within the new revolutionary government there was, yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think you would have to say that that reflected the political feelings of the population more generally, even though by we by the time we get to the early 1980s, you know, there are many people who are beginning to flee the new Iran for fear of what kind of a government this will turn into, even people who had participated happily in the revolution in the early days. So, I mean, that kind of anti-Americanism is rooted in the experience of having been, you know, subjected to a brutal authoritarian regime for more than 20 years. It's not, it is not an ideological position and it's not limited to any one sector of Iranian political thought, right? So that kind of anti-Americanism, I think, you know, we would have to acknowledge is rooted in real historical experience and not necessarily in kind of abstract ideologies. So certainly, yes, it was absolutely an aspect of the new revolutionary government. And to the extent you know, to some extent, it was a way to overcome the divides within the revolution because anti-American sentiment and anti-Shah sentiment was the kind of one meeting point for all of these different opposition groups, right? So it became a kind of rallying cry for the regime as, as a useful unifying device when there were so many fractures over what kind of a state this was going to be in the aftermath of the fall of the Shah. So this was much bigger than just the government being annoyed at American intervention. This was the entire population. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Yes. Yeah. So moving on through, there's a lot that goes on (laughs) after the revolution. So I had to pick just the biggest ones. Um, But moving on, Iran, uh, and I believe the early 80s, Iran and Iraq went to war. Mm-hmm. And so what were the causes and how did the United States get involved in the conflict? So Iraq and Iran had long been involved in a series of border disputes that were kind of temporary, temporarily settled in about 1975, but were clearly a site of dissension. And in both cases, so by the time we get to the late 1970s in Iraq, we also have the rise of an authoritarian state um, under the leadership of Saddam Hussein, who formally took power as, as president in 1979. So he, too, is in a position of trying to solidify his own domestic authority. And the Iran-Iraq war was largely over these questions of the border zones between the two states and control of those areas. It was also, though, partly about worries that the Saddam Hussein regime had about Shia influence and Iranian influence in Iraq itself. So to some degree, it's about international relations. To some degree, it's about oil. To some degree, it's also about the local and domestic politics of the Iraqi state itself. Just to clarify, Saddam Hussein and his regime was Sunni? Right, yes. And he had worries about Iranian, particularly post-revolution Iranian support for anti-government Shia organization um, in Iraq. 
probably an overblown fear, but nevertheless, that was part of his kind of political calculation. So the war began in 1980, and it lasted until 1988, and it is the most destructive conventional war of the 20th century. You know, it killed enormous numbers of people, it destroyed enormous amounts of territory, and when it was finally kind of brought to a close in 1988, it resulted in a border arrangement that was essentially the same as had been the case in 1980 when the war broke out. So it had no no real effect in terms of the supposed Casas Belli. So the United States largely supported Iraq during this period. Actually, the relationship between the U.S. and Saddam Hussein was quite close and friendly for much of this period, including lots and lots of arms sales, um, which became a kind of cornerstone of the American support for the Iraqi war effort. But it is also worth saying that through back channels, the U.S. also sold arms to Iran, as became kind of, you know, disastrously evident in the Iran-Contra scandal <laughs> that broke out in the mid-1980s. And in a way, I think you could say that its own ideological position, you know, Kissinger famous, famously said that he hoped it was a war with, that they could both lose, right, that the war itself was useful for the chaos that it brought to the region for the United States. And so the effort was not really to end it, but rather to kind of ensure that it could go on as long as possible, that it could bring the maximum amount of chaos, the maximum weakening of the Iranian regime. And the U.S. was to some degree willing to play both sides to make that happen. And so did American arms companies profit a lot from yes. this conflict? Yes, okay. absolutely. So there was also yeah. an economic side to it. Yes, absolutely. And that's actually not, you know, that's characteristic of the U.S. relationship with the Middle East in general during the 1980s, that arms sales became a hugely central aspect of policy towards all sorts of Middle Eastern states from the Gulf to Lebanon, you know. And it's it, it became a major, major feature of the approach that the American government took to Middle Eastern affairs. This conflict happens fairly quickly after the revolution. Mm-hmm. And the Iran we know today is a an important player within the local geopolitics of the Middle East. I mean, some people say they call it a cold war between some of the more powerful Gulf states like mm-hmm. the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Iran. Mm-hmm. But was this war the new regime, was this war an example of the new regime getting more involved within the geopolitics of the Middle East as a whole? Could it be described that way? Or was this just a border conflict with Iraq? I think you could say that the war itself did, so there are two things that I would say about that. One is that the war itself, especially in its early stages, actually offered an opportunity for Khomeini to rid the government of his rivals and take full control of the state, right? So it had kind of domestic political purposes. It was a unifying experience for the post-revolutionary population and a kind of way of coalescing the new revolutionary government around the idea of a common enemy, which was a regional state in the form of Iraq that was also being backed by the old Iranian enemy of the United States, right? So I think that it, it has important kind of domestic repercussions within Iran. In fact, there's there's an argument that Khomeini might not have been able to kind of consolidate support for an, an Islamic republic in quite the way that he did without the impetus of the war, without the external threat that the war provided. 
In terms of regional politics, it represented a sea change in how Iran thought about itself, right, in terms, or at least how the government of Iran thought about itself, regionally speaking, moving from essentially a kind of representative, almost a client state of the, of the U.S. to a regional power player acting against you against American interests and against imperial interests as it considered them more broadly in the region. So we do see kind of the emergence of a new set of ambitions on the part of the Iranian government and the United States made the decision during this period to begin to throw its support in a much more direct sense behind the Gulf states as a kind of substitute for what it had lost in the Shah's Iran. So we also see kind of an enormous spike in the amount of money and the number of arms sales and the kind of oil relationship, oil-based relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States as well as some of the smaller countries of the Gulf. So there's a kind of reformulation generally that really centers around this question of American influence in the region you know, broadly speaking. Moving towards the end of the war now, unfortunately, there was a tragic attack on an Iranian commercial jet mm-hmm. carrying civilians over the Strait of Hormuz, not just Iranian civilians, but international as well. Mm-hmm. Could you describe this event and the international response to it? Um, the United States made the claim that the jet was was had was flying into forbidden air t- airspace, which turned out not to be the case um, in the aftermath. And it refused responsibility for quite a long time, but did eventually kind of admit fault and apologize for the civilian deaths that took place. I mean, I think that it the centrality of the Straits demonstrated where American interests in the conflict actually lay, which was in protecting their own oil access um, to the region. And the jet itself, I mean, even though, you know, these are these are high profile and kind of shocking events when we see things like civilian airplanes go down. But in the context of the war in general, I think it's really important to note that there are many, many, many more civilian deaths that are attributable to American involvement. Right. Even in Iraq where at the end of the war, Saddam Hussein engaged in, you know, this infamous chemical attack on the Kurdish population in his own state using weapons that were derived from Western allies, largely. So, you know, I think that it's important not to kind of overstate these particular moments because civilian deaths are, you know, the numbers of civilian deaths during the Iran-Iraq war are enormous and the U.S. bears responsibility for more than just the 200-some people who died on that particular airliner. Mm. And for those of you who are watching, who were watching the news at the beginning of the new year, you already know this, but unfortunately there was a similar situation where a Ukrainian flight was shot down over Tehran, Iranian's mm-hmm. capital, and it also had some Canadian nationals on it. Mm-hmm. Some of the news outlets compared these two events. And I was wondering if you think that this comparison is, for lack of a better word, justified. I'm not sure it's particularly useful, um, other than the kind of, you know, 
shock broad, value. Yes, kind shock of, value and yeah. broad strokes. I mean, the actors are not the same. You know, we have a different kind of set of circumstances. I do think, you know, it's worth pointing out that there there can be what the military kind of callously refers to as collateral damage in these kinds of encounters, right? So it is perhaps a reminder of the dangers, the global dangers that face everybody when these kinds of situations break out and are not and are not controlled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, could you now describe the end of the Iran and Iraq war and kind of the process that led to the truce? I think it would be fair to say that it was kind of essentially exhaustion <laughs> on both sides. Of resources. Of resources, and manpower. of manpower, of domestic willingness to participate, right? Um, in both in both instances, in both on both sides. And the war really resulted in a stalemate, essentially. The borders remained where they had been. The international agreements essentially remained where they had been in 1980. So, which contributes to this kind of historiographical sense about the war as having been fought for no particular purpose. I think that from the perspective of the United States, you know, creating a situation in which two of the major oil producing countries in the Gulf were both in a state of political crisis for nearly a decade um, was also the good. I mean, I think that we need to recognize that you know, one of the things that has happened in the kind of post-1945 Middle East is that political chaos has been seen as beneficial to external powers with significant economic interests in the region. And so it has been encouraged in all sorts of ways from, you know, the mass provision of weaponry to the encouragement of kind of a particular kind of sectarian politics to the backing of certain kinds of authoritarian governments across across the region. Really, this is not specific to either Iran or Iraq. So the end of the war, you know, it ended with a, <laughs> a whimper, not a bang, I guess yeah. you could say. And, you know, it really, it really remains as kind of, you know, the popular memory of the war is that it was this long unfolding tragedy with no apparent rationale, with no apparent purpose. Mm-hmm. And so it would be correct to say that the United States did gain a lot from this conflict. I think it would. I think that we could measure that in material terms, in terms of oil, in terms of the money that came from the arms trade. But we could also measure it in terms of of strategic goals, right, where the replacement of Iran with what really is in many ways a much more kind of pliable state in Saudi Arabia was was developed and kind of worked out during the 1980s, during this period of the war. It was beneficial for the United States to develop this relationship with Iraq, in the, particularly in the kind of first half of the war. I think that from, from the perspective of the oil industry and kind of American security interests in, in the oil industry in both places, this was also kind of tremendously useful. And it offered a way to sell intervention to the American public as being intervention in a space of chaos, right? In a space where there needed to be some kind of external power monitoring the situation. This was the, the argument, you know, that was that was gradually being made to the American population. So I think there's an element of that as well. So could it be argued that 
that was almost the lead up to even more intervention on the part of the United States in the Middle East in general? I think you could argue that. Um, when the 1991 Gulf War broke out, you know, it was presented as kind of a new campaign. But of course, in many ways, the U.S. had been heavily involved in the region for decades. It did, of course, represent a change in enemy number one, right, where this government, the, the Saddam Hussein government, who had had very close relations with the U.S. during the Iran-Iraq war and was being supplied with, you know, economic assistance and weaponry of all varieties, now became kind of the, the stated enemy of the U.S. But I think that from, from 1953 on, the U.S. had the idea that intervention in the Middle East generally would be beneficial, possibly necessary, for the maintenance of American military superiority globally and for the maintenance of the American kind of economic trajectory as well. And so I think what we're seeing is kind of variations on a theme here, right? Variations on diff different kinds of interventions, different levels of intervention from direct to less direct. And um, that, that that's a commitment that has crossed over political boundaries in the U.S. as well. You know, we've seen, we've seen a commitment to that come from both major parties across many decades. And, you know, I think it, it remains with us, with us now, the idea that there, there is a necessity for some sort of American military intervention in the Middle East at all times. So moving into the 90s, as mm -hmm. you said, the Gulf War starts. Mm -hmm. But what about uh, relations between the United States and Iran? As I understand it, there was a general decrease in tensions. Would that be correct? I think that's fair to say, yes. Um, I think as the revolutionary government kind of settled in to its new position, you know, conversations and dialogues opened up again that offered the possibility of a kind of normalization of relations between the two states. Now, that's been a very up and down kind of process, you know, and it has depended on the specifics of the administration in Iran and the specifics of the administration in the U.S. But the nuclear agreement that was come to under Obama is an example of the ways in which, you know, there are there, there were moments of collaboration and moments of cooperation and kind of moments where that relationship was to some degree restored, although, of course, not in the same way as we saw in the 50s and 60s when Iran was basically a client state of the U.S. And so that brings me to my next question. Moving into the early 2000s, what were some of the major events that shaped the relationship we now have with the Iranian government? It's hard to overstate the impact of the 2003 going forward Iraq war um, for the Middle East in general. This was an event where, you know, once again, the spectrum of political opposition was very broad, but the, uh, the opposition to American intervention in Iraq was strong from virtually all sides. And it offered, you know, the way that this occupation destroyed the Iraqi state and Iraqi civil society and Iraqi infrastructure left a giant hole kind of in the middle of regional politics in the Middle East more broadly. And it opened up the possibilities for different kinds of regional actors to reimagine their role in a kind of, you know, post-American occupation Iraq and a post-American occupation Middle East more generally. 
And so that's really been that again. I, I mean, I think the purveyance of chaos is is an essentially deliberate aspect of American policy, including in, in from two thousand and three forward. But the consequences have been very difficult to predict, right? And so now we have a situation where Iran and Iraq are kind of theoretically on different sides of an emerging regional geopolitics, but in fact there's a great deal of cooperation between the two countries, especially militarily, um, that the U.S. has been reluctant to kind of publicize domestically. So I think that it is it, it really has created that invasion and the occupation that followed it and the kind of long, sta- you know, the long-term American commitment to a presence in Iraq really once again changed the dynamics of of regional politics. Well, now we've caught up with the present. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I guess my last one of my last questions would be after all of the events that just occurred, it seems as though things have kind of come to a standstill for now. No. Um, but do you see a predictable path going forward with Iran? Or like you said before, is it just going to be based on our administration as well as the Iranian administration? I don't see any reason to imagine that the United States under any administration will not continue to think that military, political and economic intervention in the Middle East is not a good idea. So that's a trend you think will continue? I think that trend will continue, um, regrettably. I, I, I'm not myself advocating for it. I think that it is. It, there has been very little pushback domestically. There are vanishingly few American political figures who are willing to kind of, you know, stand up to, to, to talk about what have been the real consequences of the, this, kind of, this series of interventions from the 1950s onward. And, you know, I think the response to the... Trump administration's assassination of Soleimani has been to highlight his crimes against the United States and not to recognize the long history of crimes that the U.S. has committed in Iran against the Iranian population, imposing an authoritarian government there for more than two decades, you know, participating in an extremely brutal war, continuing to support military interventions across the region in ways that it sees as beneficial largely to its ties with the oil industry. So I think that it's hard to imagine that coming to a close, almost no matter who is in charge. But the specifics could look very different. You know, I think in some ways the current Iranian administration is facing a situation in which it sees an opportunity to rid Iraq of American troops. And I think that that's a real possibility. Um, I think it's a possibility that would be welcomed kind of across a number of political groups in Iraq and beyond. Um, So, you know, it's a very dangerous situation. And this decision to partake in this assassination attempt, I think, has, you know, not resulted in major conflict at the moment. But I don't think there's any reason to think that it might not going forward. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that because when I did... I was watching the news virtually every day, all day long when these events unfolded and nothing was mentioned about the history. It's shocking, actually. Right. I mean, it's shocking because none of this really makes any sense without that backdrop. And I think it's important to note that when we talk about these kinds of regime replacements, what we're really talking about is 
a deliberate production of violence against a civilian population, right? Over a very long period of time, that the Shah's government was an extremely brutal one, that its money, its weapons, its political capital all came from the United States for years and years and years, and that there are so many Iranian families who have memories of people who in their, who were executed or who just mysteriously disappeared or who were arrested and spent decades rotting in prisons. You know, we need to remember, we need to acknowledge that history and that background to this, this history of admittedly hostile relations between the Iranian population and the United States. There is a reason for those relations. There are historical reasons for those relationships. And, um, you know, we need to bring that to light. This is not a purely ideological kind of reflexive anti-Westernism, right? right? That's not what's happening here. What's happening is that we have a memory of the U.S. being a criminal over a long period of time in, in its actions in Iran. So that's what represents the kind of explanatory backdrop to what's happening now. Well, thank you so much for coming on and contextualizing this for my audience. When these events happened, I was very eager to try to find a professor to come on the show and talk about it, which I happened to be in your class, which was really lucky. But um, I think especially with the dynamic political situation in the United States government and an election cycle coming up, I think informed voters are the best voters. Yes, And so I cannot thank you enough for coming onto the show and giving us the information that we need to understand. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. And then one more question before we go. Mm -hmm. I have a time-honored tradition on the podcast, and that question is, if you could travel back in time, where would you go and who would you talk to? Oh, boy. This is a tough question because I tend to study places and moments that nobody really wants to be in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think in the Middle East, you know, one one kind of interesting and telling moment is this period immediately after the First World War when there was really a kind of hope that something different would emerge out of a history of empire. You know, that there is a moment of, it's, it's a memory of kind of paths not taken um, just before the European kind of colonial occupation of most of the Middle East. So I would be interested to see that moment kind of in action, I guess. But in general, I think that I'm not eager to return to most of the kind of moments of mayhem and violence that <laughs> Europe and the United States have unleashed on the Middle East over the past century. Very understandable. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to interview you. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. <laughs> Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and is recorded in the studio of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. We are always interested to know what you guys think about the show. And recently, we have been entertaining the idea of a quiz show, so please let us, please let us know your thoughts by contacting the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook, Twitter, or email at beyondfootnotes at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, everybody.